0: Hello and welcome to the ninth podcast for English 264 Online. In this episode, we'll make the transition from the Romantic period to the Victorian era, talk about some of the major themes and developments for that period, and look at some writings by authors including Charles Dickens and Thomas Carlyle. The first topic I'd like to address is both the necessity and the difficulties of categorizing periods under certain headings, for example, we've just come out from the Romantic period, um, and we're going into the section that we'll be referring to as the Victorian period. But the two types of periods are are rather different in terms of how they, uh, in terms of their category. For example, the Romantic period refers to a development in the history of thought. The implication is that most of the people living during this time, at least most of the writers that we've been looking at, view the world in a way similar to each other, similar enough so that we can refer it to having a a similar perspective, a similar paradigm, and the name we give to that paradigm is romanticism. As we've discussed before, it is very difficult to uh, to define the term romantic. It can mean a wide variety of viewpoints, a wide variety of attitudes, but in any case the romantic period refers to a, a certain philosophical era as opposed to a political era. The Victorian period, on the other hand, strictly speaking, refers to the period in which Victoria was the Queen of England, and that's a very long period, uh, much longer than the Romantic era. Victoria became queen at the age of 18 in 1837. She died, thus ending her reign, in 1901. This is the longest reign of any monarch in English history. And certainly, England changed quite a bit during that time. For example, in 1800 only 20% of the population of England lived in cities. By 1900, 80% of the population lived in cities. In 1800, London had a population of 1 million residents. By 1900, it was over 6 million. In 1800, there was only one city of a population over 100,000 in England. By 1900, there were 30. The readings for today primarily concentrate on how people tried to adapt to these new changes what uh, difficulties and challenges and opportunities this movement towards urbanization and industrialism gave, the opportunities for wealth, the opportunities for new way of life, but also the loss of an old traditional way of life and an old um, traditional homes in most cases. As I said at the outset, strictly speaking, the Victorian period lasts from 1837 to 1901. On the other hand, there are perhaps reasons to begin the, what we would call the Victorian period before 1837 and perhaps end it before 1901, assuming that Victorian period refers, like the Romantic period did, to particular trends, to particular attitudes, to particular ways of viewing the world. For example, a number of the changes that tend to occur during the Victorian period include uh, greater understanding of science, of greater development in technology, new writers approaching the world in new ways, um, spread of democracy to more people than had been the case before, and many of these changes we can trace to periods before 1837. For example, if we see the three formative writers of the Victorian period in prose, in poetry, and in fiction, as being Thomas Carlyle, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and Charles Dickens, all three of these writers began their publishing career before 1837. Uh, Thomas Carlyle reached a great deal of fame with Sartor Rizardis in 1833, Alfred Lord Tennyson published poems chiefly lyrical in 1830, and Charles Dickens first achieved fame for his sketches collected as sketches by Bose in 1836. Similarly, changes in science were already underway. If, for example, we see the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 as a, as a characteristically Victorian turning for, uh, towards science for answers, we can see earlier works which also were doing something of the same. Um, Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, for instance, in 1830, called into question the age of the earth and argued that it was much older than the 6,000 years generally assumed by the church. Finally, there was a tendency uh, during the Victorian period to give political power to more people, this began in 1832 with the Great Reform Bill, which gave the vote to the middle classes, and effect—or middle-class males—and effectively doubled the electorate. This was extended in 1867 with the Second Reform Bill, which gave the vote to the working classes, and then eventually, after the Victorian period in 1918, when women received the vote. All of these uh, changes are characteristic of the time and form part of the the sense of the Victorian age. Uh, It was not, not, at least not entirely, uh, a stuffy, prudish period of um, the common imagination of when we generally use the term Victorian today, as in somebody has uh, uh, Victorian attitudes, we generally use it as a pejorative term, meaning that we disagree with those attitudes and we see them as out of fashion, as as out of date. Um, But looked at more carefully, the Victorian period was a time of great advances, a time of, of great vigor and, and imagination. There were new developments in technology during this period, such as telegraphs, railroads, photography, phonographs, eventually moving pictures in the 1890s. There were major advances in medicine, particularly the development of an effective anesthesia. Uh, Queen Victoria was the first woman in England to give, um, to give birth to a child while under anesthesia and um, new branches or developing branches of science, including neurology, physiology, geology, astronomy, genetics, psychology. It was a time of great change, and the people of this time saw themselves living in a new world which was greatly different from the world that had come before. They reacted to that change both positively and negatively because there was good and bad in the change. It was a time of two nations, as we saw in the readings for today, uh, a division between the, the, those who were prosperous, those who were um, making a great deal of, of money from these changes, and those who were not, as, as we saw in, some, in many of the readings as well. The first reading I wanted to call your attention to is Fanny Kimball's Records of a Girlhood, where she talks about her first ride on a steam engine uh, in 1830. This was towards the very beginning of the development of the steam locomotive, which was invented in England. Uh, It was the first time in the history of the world where anyone had ever gone faster than a horse could ride. And she talks about riding on this steam engine and tries to find ways of comparing it. The feel of it is entirely different from being on a horse or being in a carriage. Uh, The smoothness, the rapidity, the the silence of the ride, like comparative silence, uh, compared to to a horse with steel-shod hooves and carriage wheels. And she can only describe it as being like a fairy tale. Uh, Eventually she goes 35 miles an hour, faster than a bird can fly, and she writes, You cannot conceive what that sensation of cutting the air was. The motion is as smooth as possible, too. I could either have read or written. When I closed my eyes, this sensation of flying was quite delightful and strange beyond description. Yet strange as it was, I had a perfect sense of security and not the slightest fear as this brave little she-dragon of ours flew on. Note both the, the confidence, the exuberance, the the optimism for the future, the sense of security, perhaps misplaced security because they were, they, um, there were railway accidents, there were explosions of boilers and, and so forth, um, but this very positive view of this new world she lives in, uh, a, a fairy tale world is the way she describes it. You find another very positive view of this new world in the writings of Thomas Babington Macaulay, a writer sometimes referred to as the most Victorian of all Victorian writers, in the sense of uh, being a, a, an ardent supporter of all, these, all things new. And, and he writes in the very first sentence, history is full of the signs of this natural progress of society. Uh, his assumption is things are getting better and better, the country is getting more and more prosperous, um, that the factories and, and uh, capitalists are advancing the age, and as long as the government stays out of its way, uh, imposes no um, Unjust tariffs or or restrictions on industry, uh, England will advance to a a height never dreamed of before in previous generations. So, both in Kimball and Macaulay, you get very positive views of the world to come. Not all writers and observers of the period, of course, were so positive and optimistic. Uh, Charles Dickens, for instance, you have a number, you have two excerpts in your anthology uh, from his novels, from Dombey and Son, about uh, a passage which talks about the coming of. A Railway Line Through the City, and Hard Times, which refers, which describes an industrial town uh, he gives the name of Coketown to, based perhaps in, in Manchester or, or Sheffield. And you also have a passage, one of the sketches by Bowes, by Dickens, Bowes was his pen name, uh, in the uh, e-text uh, assignments for the reading, uh, The Visit to Newgate, where he describes going to the main criminal penitentiary in London, uh, Newgate Prison. I wanted to look at these passages for a, sec- for a few seconds. Um, in The Coming of the Railway, you have a description of a, com- a society in turmoil, a, a community, a neighborhood, um, torn apart, everything turned upside down, everything, uh, all the, f- the familiar signs, all the familiar locales, uh, completely transformed. And then he, des- after describing what has occurred, he tells you what it means. In short, the yet unfinished and unopened railroad was in progress, and from the very core of all this dire disorder, trailed smoothly away upon its mighty course of civilization and improvement. Now, uh, presumably the reader would detect a certain degree of sarcasm in the term civilization and improvement, uh, although Dickens was often ambiguous about... Was often am, Dickens was often ambivalent in his feelings towards the railway and towards progress. Um, there's a, a chapter after this one in Dombey and Son which describes the neighborhood after the railway line has come through, and there's more positive than negative about it. Uh, it, it generally does seem to have brought civilization and improvement to that neighborhood. In hard times, he's, he's less ambivalent in, in his description, in that Coketown is generally seen as a, um, a hard place to live, uh, as a place which turns people into um, less than human, uh, he He writes, in describing Coketown on page 497. It was a town of machinery and tall chimneys out of which interminable serpents of smoke trailed themselves for ever and ever and never got uncoiled. It had a black canal in it and a river that ran purple with ill-smelling dye and vast piles of building full of windows where there was a rattling and a trembling all day long and where the piston of the steam engine worked monotonously up and down like the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness. It contained several large streets all very like one another And many small streets, still more like one another, inhabited by people equally like one another, who all went in and out at the same hours, with the same sound, upon the same pavements, to do the same work, and whom every day was the same as yesterday and tomorrow, and every year the counterpart of the last and the next. Uh, A mechanical age, an age of industry, an age of assembly lines, as opposed to the traditional age where you worked according to the seasons and according to the, the sun. Uh, with artificial light, with machinery. Uh, there's no need for the for the seasonal changes. There's no need for the, the daily changes. You do the same job day or night. In a visit to Newgate, I wanted to call your attention to uh, one Im- important reminder, which is that most of the early Victorians were, in fact, raised during the Romantic period and read the Romantics, um, often shared their view. Uh, Dickens was particularly influenced by many of the Romantic writers, and when he writes in this description of the penitentiary, of the, the main prison in London, uh, you may notice a number of concerns which are similar to what you would have found perhaps if Blake or Wordsworth had described them, really more Wordsworth than Blake. Um, for example, there's a strong emphasis on the eyewitness who who travels to some place most people have not gone and comes back to tell what it was like. Um, the ancient mariner, it, that the the narrator of A Visit to Newgate, has gone into the prison, is coming out to describe it to the middle-class reader who likely has never been there and never intends to go there personally. He says, we took no notes, made no memoranda, measured none of the yards, ascertained the exact number of inches in no particular room, are unable even to report how many apartments the jail is composed. We saw the prison and saw the prisoners and what we did see and what we thought, we will tell at once in our own way again a very romantic emphasis on perspective and on the the that which you have witnessed personally and thought about the perhaps even wordsworth spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions recollected in tranquility and communicated to the reader to share those emotions Uh, note he talks about on on the second page in in that e-text A girl who was in prison. Uh, He has two mother and daughter pairs, one where the daughter is the prisoner, one where the mother is the prisoner. And uh, the second pair, he refers to the girl who has come to visit her mother in prison and writes, the girl belonged to a class unhappily but too extensive, the very existence of which should make men's hearts bleed. Barely past her childhood, it required but a glance to discover that she was one of those children, born and bred in neglect and vice, who have never known what childhood is who have never been taught to love and court a parent's smile or to dread a parent's frown. And again, you should be reminded of uh, the the Chimney Sweepers in in Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience, Uh, children who have been put to work, who have been made old before their time. Um, You see another example of this in Mayhew with uh, the Crossing Sweeper, or even more strongly in the, the Watercress Girl, who all she knows is how to buy and sell watercress. This girl has had no formal education. She has had no religious instruction. Everything in her life is to make her severely useful uh, in terms of being able to buy and sell watercress, and that's all she knows. Um, Again, like like Blake's Chimney Sweepers, she has given up her childhood for the usefulness of her purpose in society, and Dickens and Mayhew and other writers are uh, calling into question whether this is right, whether society can function in this way. Another element in which Dickens resembles the previous Romantics is his... Uh, on two occasions in this uh, sketch, he calls on the reader to put himself in the place of this these convicts, to imagine, to think about what life would be like in this way. Uh, he has said from the very beginning of this sketch that um, he's trying to overcome the force of habit which causes thousands of Londoners to walk by the prison every day without noticing or thinking about the people inside. And he says on the third page, describing the the chapel in the prison, and particularly describing the condemned pew, where those uh, capital prisoners who are awaiting their execution sit uh, the Sunday before their execution. Uh, And he, he points out to the reader, Imagine what have been the feelings of the men whom that fearful pew has enclosed, and of whom, between the gallows and the knife, no mortal remnant may now remain. Think of the hopeless clinging to life, to the last, and the wild despair, far exceeding in anguish the felon's death itself, by which they have heard the certainty of their speedy transmission to another world, with all their crimes upon their heads, rung into their ears by the officiating clergyman. On the final page, he works up ultimate effect in this sketch, which is, uh, he has made his way through the prison from the outer quarters to the inn, from the women's prisons to the... To the children's, to the men's, then to the capital, um, to the death row, um, and finally to the last room on death row, the room where the prisoner who is awaiting execution spends the night before dawn when he will be hanged. He puts the reader in the place of that convict. Um, He writes, "'Conceive the situation of a man spending his last night on earth in this cell, buoyed up with some vague and undefined hope of reprieve. He knows not why.' Indulging in some wild and visionary idea of escaping, he knew not how, hour after hour of the three preceding days allowed him for pre- preparation, has fled with the speed which no man living would deem possible, for none but this dying man can know. And he puts the reader, even in the dreams of this man, in his last hours on earth, uh, again it seems to me uh, a romantic tendency to focus on the social outcasts, on the vulnerable, on the... Uh, the perception of individuals and um, helping the reader put his mind out to another place to see what it's like for somebody else. In part, in part this was necessary because of the, the state of this modern urbanized society. Uh, as you saw from Wordsworth's Preface to Lyrical Ballads, where he hoped that this new form of poetry would help uh, counteract some of the negative social trends that he witnessed in his own day. Um, you see those same trends not counteracted, uh, but instead emphasized in Frederick Engels' uh, account of... Um, in Frederick Engels' The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844, where upon visiting London, he writes on page 502, "...the more that Londoners are packed into a tiny space, the more repulsive and disgraceful becomes the brutal indifference with which they ignore their neighbors and selfishly concentrate upon their private affairs." We know well enough that this isolation of the individual, this narrow-minded egotism, is everywhere the fundamental principle of modern society. But nowhere is this selfish egotism so blatantly evident as in the frantic bustle of the great city. The disintegration of society into individuals, each guided by his private principles and each pursuing his own aims, has been pushed to its furthest limits in London. Here, indeed, human society has been split into its component atoms. Ingalls talks about this uh, pulverization of society and community into individuals, each pursuing their own interests, each pursuing their own goods, uh, and each stepping on all the others in order to get uh, a little handle up on the world. He sees this in London. He sees it even more strongly in Manchester, which was one of the first industrialized cities. Uh, it's a city which exists because of the factories. And the accounts of the slums, the accounts of the, the living conditions and the poorer quarters, and the difference between the, the way they live and the way their, their employers, their factory owners live, um, a, a strong component of this, this writing. Um, you should be aware that Frederick Engels went on some four years later to write the Communist Manifesto with Karl Marx, arguing that uh, the only way to solve these social problems was for a, a revolution, It was for a class struggle for the, uh, the factory workers. To turn an armed revolt on their employers, and to take the goods and that they would not that would not be shared with them, although this uh, manifesto was carried out in some places, that never occurred in England. In part, because um, the government tended to over time um, release some of the power and share some, which was not expected by Marx and Engels. One of the most important commentators on the Victorian age was Thomas Carlyle. Um, a sage and prophet, uh, a prose writer from Scotland who combines German transcendental philosophy with Scottish Calvinist harangue of the, from the pulpit uh, to produce really an astonishing and uh, in- inimitable style. In Past and Present, he writes at, uh, at the same time as Frederick Engels, and he points out the social ills and gives suggestions for ways of correcting them uh, and what he sees to be a desperate trend in society. He writes on page four hundred seventy eight Descend where you will into the lower class, in town or country, by what avenue you will, by factory inquiries, agricultural inquiries, by revenue returns, by mining labour committees, by opening your own eyes and looking, the same sorrowful result discloses itself. You have to admit that the working body of this rich English nation has sunk or is fast sinking into a state to which, by all sides of it, considered there is there was literally never any parallel. And he gives a particular example from the newspaper accounts of uh, a legal matter uh, at Stockport Assizes. A mother and a father are arraigned and found guilty of poisoning three of their children to defraud a burial society of some three pounds, eight shillings, due on the death of each child. They are arraigned, found guilty, and the official authorities, it is whispered, hint that perhaps the case is not solitary, that perhaps you had better not probe farther into that department of things. This is the autumn of 1841. The crime itself is of the previous year or season. Brutal savages, degraded Irish, mutters the idle reader of newspapers, hardly lingering on this incident. Yet it is an incident worth lingering on, the depravity, savagery, and degraded Irishism being never so well admitted. In the British land, a human mother and father, of white skin and professing the Christian religion, had done this thing. They, with their Irishism and necessity and savagery, had been driven to do it. Such instances are like the highest mountain apex emerged into view, under which lies a whole mountain region and land not yet emerged. A human mother and father had said to themselves, What shall we do to escape starvation? We are here, we are deep sunk here in our dark cellar, and help is far. The Stockport mother and father think and hint, Our poor little starveling Tom, who cries all day for victuals, who will see only evil and not good in this world, if he were out of misery at once, he well dead, and the rest of us perhaps kept alive? It is thought and hinted, at last it is done, and now Tom being killed and all spent and eaten, is it poor little starveling Jack that must go, and poor or poor little starveling Will? What a committee of ways and means. Carlyle's indignation and sarcasm spills off the page as he points out that the society that is uh, that prides itself, in Macaulay's term, of being the, the most progressive, the most advanced of all civilization, the the first race in the world, is actually reducing its members to eating their own children, to killing them for the burial money so that they can keep the family alive. And he sees that uh, this is a trend as society falls apart, as the community is reduced into its component atoms. A similar example arises from the newspaper with the anecdote of the Irish widow, uh, as he writes... Um, A poor Irish widow, her husband having died in one of the lanes of Edinburgh, went forth with her three children, bare of all resource, to solicit help from the charitable establishments of that city. At this charitable establishment, and then at that she was refused, referred from one to the other, helped by none, till she had exhausted them all, till her strength and heart failed her. She sank down in typhus fever, died and infected her lane with fever, so that seventeen other persons died of fever there in consequence. The humane physician asks thereupon, as with a heart too full for speaking, would it not have been economy to help this poor widow? The forlorn Irish widow appe- applies to her fellow creatures as if saying, Behold, I am sinking, bear of help. You must help me. I am your sister, bone of your bone. One God made us. Ye must help me. They answer, No, impossible. Thou art no sister of ours. But she proves her sisterhood. Her typist fever kills them. They actually were her, sis- her brothers, though denying it. Had human creature ever to go lower for a proof, Carlyle's tendency is to pick newspaper accounts, uh, signs on the street, uh, images from current events, as signs of the time, uh, like Carlyle or Blake seeing through finite surfaces to the infinite behind them. He sees through these newspaper accounts, these uh, trials, to the truths that are behind them, to the, the trends that are, are working their way through society. And he writes... All government of the poor by the rich has long ago been given over to supply and demand, laissez-faire, and such like, and universally declared to be impossible. And he argues that the typhus fever, which struck down seventeen in the street, is but a forerunner of what will come. What will come? What will be the harvest from this policy? On page 484, Carlyle issues his commi- um, his insistent command for his audience. He writes, awake, O nightmare sleepers, awake, arise, or be forever fallen. This is not playhouse poetry, it is sober fact. Our England, our world cannot live as it is. And at the bottom of that same page, he writes, good heavens, will not one French revolution and reign of terror suffice us, or must there be two? There will be two if needed, there will be twenty if needed, there will be precisely as many as are needed. The laws of nature will have themselves fulfilled, that is a thing certain to me. Carlisle's point in Past and Present, as the title suggests, his comparison of the Middle Ages to the modern world, and pointing out that the Middle Ages was in many ways superior. The Middle Ages was in many ways preferable to the modern world, particularly in its sense of community and place and purpose, in its sense of connectedness between the leaders of society and those who, who they led. And he calls for, once again, that sort of connectedness, for that sort of communal responsibility, taking care of each other as opposed to only looking out for number one, looking out for ourselves. He abandons any hope in the aristocracy and the traditional leaders, uh, referring to them as the masters of idleness, uh, who do nothing, and hopes that the captains of industry, the the new factory workers, the new technocrats, will be the ones who will be able to be shamed into putting together um, some sense of social welfare, some sense of social support, Uh, will see a connectedness to their workers, other than merely the cash nexus of salary and and production. And he hopes, in past and present, to inspire the captains of industry to take charge, to to be leaders, to step up to their responsibility uh, in this new world, uh, and not to uh, spend all their time in making money, but more into making uh, making the world a better place. As the age went on, uh, Carlyle began to get more and more distraught, more and more even hysterical in his writings, as he saw the age not turning around from the direction that it seemed to be heading in. Uh, but at least in, at this point, in the 1840s, he, he is somewhat guardedly optimistic that things can get better, that they will be able to avoid a revolution like the one in France. There were as many as are necessary. It's worth noting that Thomas Carlyle was born in the same year as John Keats, had John Keats lived 60 years longer, they would have had the same span of life, but Keats died at 26 and Carlisle at 86, and as a result um, Carlisle is referred to as a Victorian author and Keats as a Romantic. But uh, Thomas Carlyle, the first of the Victorians we look at and Keats the last of the Romantics I hope indicate that there is a, a degree of gray area between these two periods. There's not a, a sharp divider between the one and the other but rather a span of transformation. In your blogs, uh, I look forward to seeing your comments, your reactions to these writings, and your thoughts on how their perspectives help inform you about the age which we will be investigating over the next couple weeks. That's the end of today's podcast. Thank you, and goodbye.